Good morning, good morning. Epiphany, how we doing this morning? Good, good. It's such an honor and delight to be uh, here with you this morning, found in corporate worship. It's nothing, it's, it's good to worship Jesus at home, but it's nothing like corporate worship where you get to gather together. Uh, woke up this morning singing a, a different hymn uh, called, called Thank You, Lord, for Saving My Soul. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that hymn. Just, I mean, I'm not going to sing it. Um, unless you play it. No, 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 no. I'm not going to sing it. Lyrics literally say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation. So rich and it's so free. Love songs like that. Woke up thinking about that. I mean, literally text my wife. I, I get up really early on Sunday mornings. Text my wife while she's in the bed. Just sent her the lyrics like, man, I can't stop thinking about this this song. I'm sure she was not happy about a text at six o'clock in the morning. Um, but thinking about that in Ephesians chapter two, that we were dead in our, our sins and the trespasses of our sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. Nothing like thinking about the gospel waking up uh, such a freeing and um, such a such a joy and a delight. Listen, welcome to Epiphany Church. Those of you who are first time visitors, my name is Brandon Watts. I get to serve here. The awesome privilege to serve here as the lead pastor of this church plant. Uh, young, young, young church plant. Just planted a couple of. I don't even think we've made two months yet. Planted March twentieth of this year, and uh, it's been a real joy and delight to serve the community and serve. Uh, here as the pastor. Listen, I want to jump right in. I am just really, really eager to preach. If you could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. As you're going there, uh, we'd love for you guys to hang out with us at... Um, at City Island. Hope you guys can make it. Those of you who are who have cars that I know some of you have expressed that you have uh, you need a ride. And so, you know, cars are available. If you guys could try to link up with somebody, that'd be great. It's nothing like some deep fried fish. I'm just I'm just saying, you know, I told y'all last week when the scripture said they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. We, we're going to be faithful to the scriptures today. <laughs> And we're going we're gonna to eat some deep, fried, some deep fried fish sandwiches. All right. We've been going through a series called The Bride of Christ. The Bride of Christ literally is talking about uh, the church and different aspects of the church. Trying to check, and I say this every week, but it's true, trying to check our experiences of what church is at the door and literally just, let's just act like we don't know anything about church and all we have is this. And then somebody said, hey, start a church with only this. Like you don't have any experience. You don't have any mindset of what church is like. That's been our hope and our prayer over the last few weeks. We started off in Matthew chapter 16, talking about Jesus as the builder of the church. There's no other way to start. I mean, you can't start talking about the church and start talking about anything else besides who built the church and who sustains the church. Colossians 1 says the same thing, that he's the head of the church. And so Jesus was clear in Matthew 16, building the church off of Peter's confession in Matthew 16. What is his confession? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so the church is built on the divinity of Jesus Christ. Last week, we were in Acts chapter 2, and really talked about the characteristics of a healthy church. And so we walked through really four different characteristics that were found in, uh, in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 and talked about how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Literally walked through a sermon that Paul preached, that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, hit three different verses in the Old Testament and preached Jesus out of each one of them. That is what they devoted themselves to. And then it talked about how they devoted themselves to the, the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship or the koinonia. By the way, Timmy, if you just say it fast and, and confident, nobody knows. <laughs> just, just say it. Just let it roll out. The koinonia. I could be wrong, but it sounds good, right? They devoted themselves to the koinonia, the, 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 the fellowship, different than how we think about fellowship. We said it's not punching cookies that they devoted themselves to, but they devoted themselves to joint participation. That means that they actually brought something to community. So often we have such a consumeristic mindset when it comes to church. How does the church serve me? So we talked about what the early church, the early church did not have that mindset. They automatically thought, let me go into community and see how I can meet another need not my own needs. And so they devoted themselves to that. Another characteristic that's healthy for a church is the breaking of bread. I joked around about it, but it's true. They actually ate meals together. 
And we talked about how sometimes the most spiritually disciplined thing you can do is grab lunch, grab dinner with somebody that you normally don't uh, do that with. And then the last thing, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Notice it didn't say they devoted themselves to prayer, but it's plural, the prayer. So it was a consistent it was a consistent flow of prayers through the early church. And so we've been walking through that. Today, I want to get us out of the clouds and on the ground a bit and talk about what church government looks like. When I say church government, I'm talking about the leaders within the local church. So we've been talking a lot about the universal church, all believers across this world that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We're all a part of one body. That's the universal church. And that works itself out through the local church. And so today I, I want to focus on the local church and talk about elders within the local church. Uh, that's that's our, our hope and prayer. And so 1 Timothy 3, this is a pastoral epistle. Paul is writing this letter to his son Timothy to give him instructions on what a overseer, and, when, and the word says overseer in the ESV, but it's it's synonymous with elder or bishop. It's all the same word. So I'm going to use the word elder just because it makes sense in our context. Uh, but you'll see overseer here. Um, and so I'll read, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll just jump in. First Timothy chapter three, verse number one says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, bishop, uh, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, not, not, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Such an important question. Verse six, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Want to talk for a few minutes on elders in the local church, elders in the local church. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for meeting us here. We could have stayed home on this beautiful day. We could have taken this day to be uh, another rest day, uh, like a Saturday, and just been home, maybe listen to a podcast, maybe watch some TV. But uh, we got ourselves up, came to church uh, to be gathered amongst your people to worship you. Uh, we don't come for our own glory. We don't come for uh, to make our names known, but we come to seek the face of Jesus Christ. And we come to do that corporately. And we pray this morning that you would meet us. We are um, anticipating that you're going to speak to us through what you've already spoken to your word. Pray for my faithfulness to the text that I would just uh, preach only what the text has to say. Nothing more, nothing less, but purely based on what the Bible says. Would you encourage the believer in this room today? The one that knows church, knows what elders are, uh, knows what the role is, or maybe even thinks he knows. I pray that you would help us today to really understand and unpack that. Pray for the unbliever. We are thankful that you send uh, the person that doesn't know you, that's far from you here. We're thankful that they're here. Would you meet them today and change hearts, transform lives? That's what the word does. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them through your truth for your word is your truth. And I pray for sanctification through your word today. It's in Christ's name we give glory. Amen. Amen. Elders in the local church. My father was in the military, uh, not just the military, but the, the, the real branch of the military, the Marines. Simplify, y'all. I don't know if y'all know what simplify means. That's a Latin phrase for uh, always faithful. That's a model that the Marines have. And uh, he was in the Marines. And so I, I grew up in a, a military household, bounced around quite a bit was born in Virginia, lived in North Carolina, lived in Hawaii. I can't believe I lived in Hawaii and do not remember it. Like I was a, a child, like I feel like the Lord was punishing me at that moment that I would live next to the beach in Hawaii and have no clue um, of it. But my father was in the military. So um, he, he used to share stories with my brother and I of 
like how he got enlisted into the Marines and some of the requirements and qualifications to be a Marine. I mean, the normal qualifications are you got to be at least 17 or older, right? A kid can't be enlisted into the Marines. You got to be a U.S. citizen. You can't be an illegal immigrant and, and be in the military. So there's normal requirements that you have for being in the military. Uh, but when he started to share with me some of the the, the physical examinations he had to undergo. I mean, he told me a story where there were doctors lined up with shots and you would have to walk down, get shots as you're walking down. Uh, to be in the Marines, like I'm thinking of that, like first of all, one, I hate shots. One person giving me a shot, I'm gonna cry. But he's talking about how he's getting shots, walking, when he's done, his arms are like bleeding from all of these shots. I mean, physical examinations are, are serious within the military. They wanna make sure that you are physically healthy. There's also a basic recruit training. Y'all seen the, the movies where you have to be yelled at by a drill sergeant. I don't know why the drill sergeant always calls you maggot. I don't know why that's such an attractive word for them. You maggot, you standard, whatever. But anyway, Anyway, so my father had to undergo, undergo basic training, which was hard, right? It was a lot. So there's a requirement to be in the military. Same thing as it relates to God's sovereign army. There is requirements for elders. There's requirements that every elder must meet. There's a requirement for me. You guys should be holding me to a standard based on what we just read. And so if you're looking at this list and like, oh man, like a husband of one wife, but I, I saw him slap tie outside on the street. Like I'm disqualified. I can no longer, I don't know if y'all know tie. I'm not slapping her. Like if anything, that thing is reversed. She's going to slap me. I'm just saying, I know how this thing works. And so there's, there's basic requirements for an elder. And here's, here's the truth of the matter. The reason why this is important that we walk through as a church. We don't have elders yet, but the point that I, I really want to push to you today is you need to know what the requirements are because one day I'll stand men up here and say, we want to make these men elders and you will have to be able to say, well, how do they line up with 1 Timothy chapter 3? How do they line up with Titus chapter 1? How are they fitting within 1 Peter chapter 5? These, these pastoral guidances that we have, how do they line up with them? And me too, how do I line up with this? And so the scriptures give us clarity on this. Uh, the role of elder is something that we as a church take very seriously, very seriously, particularly because, and let me just, before I even get into the text, let me just kind of tell you and, and, and anchor you in where we are, our stances as a church. We are a elder ruled church. What does that mean? That means we're not congregationalists there. And I have friends that are, that means, you know, I put something before you guys, a decision that I, we need to make and you guys all vote on the decision. And that's the direction of our church. We don't, we don't believe that that's a biblical stance from, for us. So we don't hold to a congregational style leadership. The, the congregation doesn't lead the direction of the church. Elders do. We don't believe in a deacon-led model. I've grown up in churches where the deacon board, y'all know the deacon board with the white gloves, you know. The deacon board will lead everything in, in the church down to the name of the church, how the church functions, where the, the, the vision of the church, the deacons lead the church. We don't, we're not a deacon-led church. We are an elder, not just elder-led, an elder-ruled church. Meaning we believe that the New Testament shows us that the church the way the Lord has designed the church is to flourish under, the, uh, under a group of elders, under a group of elders. And so that is our, our, our hope for this church, elder rule church. Let me point out a few things before we get into the text. Um, let me point out a few things that I think are important for you to know as it relates to elders. Number one, there's really four things I want to point out. Number one, Elders, our belief in eldership here is that an elder, we believe in a plurality of elders. What do I mean by that? We, we believe that there is shared leadership. There's not one guy making all of the decisions for the church, but we believe that there is, the Lord has shown this thing to function well and flourish when there's a group of men that are leading the church. And so one person does not make all the decisions that you can get a lot of things done quicker if it's one person making the decision, but it's not healthy. It's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for the church. Let me just give some scripture behind that because over and over again in the New Testament, what you will see is a plurality of elders over and over again. Let me show you this in the scriptures. Apostles, 
Apostle Paul leaves Titus in Crete and instructs, instructs him in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. It says, appoint, listen, elders in every city, plural. James 5, 14, if anyone is sick among you, then he must call on the elders, plural. Listen to this, of the church, singular. That means there were more than one elders in that one church. The elders of the church does it again in Acts 14, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, singular, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord. Acts 20, 17, he sent, Ephesus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. See it again, plural, church is singular. Acts 15, verse number four, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. So you see it again at last one, Acts 15, 22 says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders of the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. So over and over again, we see the importance of dual eldership, dual eldership. Now I know you're sitting here going, well, th that's the New Testament. Everything you read, everything you're talking about is New Testament. Moses surely carried a load by himself. I would agree with you, but then then his father Jethro, Jethro Checkham, y'all remember that story? His his father-in-law sees him. In fact, let me just let me just read it really quickly. Uh, Exodus chapter eighteen. We have to do this foundational work before we jump in. Exodus chapter eighteen. Y'all don't have to turn to it. I'm gonna I'll read it for us. Listen, to what Moses is doing. This, this is reckless right here. Listen. Then the next day, the next day Moses set to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening, like all day. When Moses' father-in-law saw what he was doing, the people said, uh, when, he, when he saw what the people were doing, he said, what is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning to evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statues and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, listen to this, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice. And God be with you. You shall represent for the people of God and bring their cases before God. And you shall warn them. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Verse 21. Moreover, look, listen to this. Moreover, look for able men from among the people, men who fear God and are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people, and let them judge, I lost my place, fifties, uh, oh, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but small matters they'll decide for themselves. So it will be easier for you, and you will not bear the burden alone. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure and all the people also will go to their places in peace. So Moses listened to his father, the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the house, over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, fifties and tens. And they judged the people at all times and the hard cases they brought to Moses, but the small matters they decided for themselves. Then Moses father-in-law departed and he went his own way to his own country. I love that. First of all, he dropped some advice, dropped some wisdoms and like, I'm, I'm leaving. I love that he does that. But do you see what happens? Moses is sitting around and he, all he's doing is judging the cases of people over and over again. His father-in-law sees him and says, that's not healthy. Don't do that. Pick some men, some able men that don't like a bribe, that are trustworthy. Pick them and put them in place so that they can bear this wait with you. Let me just tell you, I have a wife and two kids. It's no way in the world long term that I could be the only elder bearing the full weight of a church with a wife and two kids. Like, you know how many pastors succeed at church and fail at home? Like, I have to be at 
all of my kids, like this week I had to take a, it was overpriced Uber, but I had to take a, a Uber from across Brooklyn all the way to make sure I was on time for my son's parent-teacher conference. I'm, me, I'm making stuff. Like my kids won't grow up and say I hated the church because you weren't around. My wife will not, she will not pull me aside and say, you know what? You never spend time with me. All you're doing is church stuff. What we need is a plurality of elders to be able to help this thing function so that the full weight is not on me. And so a plurality of elders, that's something that we wholeheartedly believe in. So I know you're probably sitting here like, well, you're the only pastor though, which is true. You're the only elder. You're talking about plurality, but it's just you, which is true right now. But even right now, I don't know if you guys know this, there is a management team that we have created around uh, the leadership of our church, which is me for now, they've, we've created a management team which acts as a provisional elder board. What does that do? That helps me with decisions. Now, they're not here. They're pastors across this country. They're not here right now. My pastor, Dr. Mason in Philadelphia, is one of those guys. They help us with decisions. I'm talking budget has to be approved. I'm not doing that alone. Right? How we spend money. I'm not making those decisions alone. We're making them with the wisdom and the knowledge of other people. Proverbs 11:14 says, "Out of the abundance of counselors, there's safety. There's safety when a group of people are able to speak into um, a situation. And so we have a provisional elder board, but at some point we need to have our own local elders and drop the provisional elder board. That's the goal. And so uh, if you're looking around and going, well, you're, you're the only one, just know that I long-term am not going to be making decisions by myself. And even now I'm not doing that. The second thing I, I really need to point out, just as it relates to elders, and this one is probably a bit more controversial and I understand why it is. Uh, but we believe here as a church that elders, the office for elder is reserved for men only. Now, before y'all beat me up, <laughs> Before y'all come and, and punch me in the face for making a statement like that, let me just state, state off the bat that this has nothing to do with gifting and value. It has everything to do with design. Everything to do with how the Lord has ordained and created the church. I know, well, it's 2016. How can you say such a thing? Well, the time doesn't, time doesn't dilute what the Bible says. Time doesn't make the Bible not relevant anymore. And I told you guys a few weeks ago, if we play this game where I'll pick a verse and say, well, I don't have to obey that anymore because time is changed. Culture has changed. I can do that with another verse. We can do that with the gospel. We can say, I don't have to submit to the gospel. The gospel is not true because time is 2016. And so we believe here that the office of elder is reserved for men. Now, I'm, not beating, I'm not beating anybody's church up that has women elders. Listen, I have friends that are women elders right now. And so I'm not beating anybody up. I'm just saying our stance and our place. Well, that's a cultural issue, right? In, in the time that the church was birthed, women weren't allowed to do certain things. And so if Paul would have put a woman in place, then... It wouldn't have been culturally relevant. The problem with that is Paul never addresses the issue of women's roles and men's roles within a church. He never addresses it from a cultural standpoint. He always goes back to creation. Oh, in fact, in the very verse that we're in, if you look a couple of verses up at the end of chapter two, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. By the way, pastoring, preaching is authoritative by nature. By nature, it's authoritative. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she should remain quiet. Verse 13, for Adam was created first and then Eve. So what he did was he just laid out qualifications. He's talking about the role, the office of elder, and he doesn't go to culture. He goes to creation. In other words, this is how it was designed. Adam is created first. Eve, he goes to creation, doesn't even talk about culture. Doesn't touch, doesn't touch culture. And so just because we have a woman running for president doesn't mean that we now get to change and have editorial right over the text. We still have to submit to what uh, not just Paul says, but what he shows in creation. He goes back to Genesis 1. This is how the thing was ordained. And so, um, and so we believe that the office of elder is reserved for men only. That does not mean that women don't have, I believe that women still have a teaching gift. I do. I believe that women have the ability to, to disciple and there should be avenues that the church provides for women to be able to 
exercise that gift. I think we just have to do it in a, in a biblically appropriate way, if that makes sense. Uh, verse, uh, not verse, but my third point I wanted to make before we dive into the list of qualifications. Third is that a, a, an elder doesn't necessarily mean an old man. Right. Doesn't mean he has to have a beard with a cane. That's not I mean, we think of elder like that, but nothing in our text today says an age limit of when you can become an elder. Let me just say off the bat, man, I can't tell you how many people ask me, hey, so what are you doing? I say pastor. And they're like, you're too young. You're not old enough to be a pastor. I'm like, well, why not? Or, or, man, I was in Dallas one time, and I took another Uber incident. I took an Uber, and there was this older lady that was driving the Uber, and we were having a great conversation. She was telling me how she spent some summers in Brooklyn, and so we were talking, and so she says to me, well, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. Literally on the highway, turns around and looks at me. Like, don't ever catch eye contact on a highway while someone's driving. I'm like, why are you looking at me when you're driving? She looks at me and says, but you're like 21 years old. I'm like, first of all, I'm 36. You're going to put some respect on my age. I'm just saying. I'm just saying I'm 36. I'm, I'm channeling my inner bird man right now. I'm channeling it. But even if I was 21... There's a 20, that 21-year-old guy can be an elder. I don't, I don't know necessarily if it's healthy for him. We gotta, he'd have to be a mature 21-year-old. But there's nothing in the text that does not show me that a 21-year-old, a young man couldn't be an elder. And so I uh, wanted to point that out. That doesn't necessarily mean old. Um, last one before we jump into the text. An elder uh, should be honored and respected. Now, this isn't to floss, this isn't to stroke my ego. Listen, I don't need my ego stroke. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, the same letter we are preaching from, we are talking about today. Later on in this letter, he says, let the elder who rules well be counted worthy. He doesn't even just say honor. Let the elder who rules well be counted worthy of double honor especially those that labor in preaching and teaching. And so there's a honor and respect to this day. Every pastor I've ever submitted to, I respect it. To this day, I still submit to my pastor in Philadelphia and still honor and respect him. Why? Because do you realize the sacrifices that a pastor has to make? Do you know Acts 13 verse 17 says that we have to give an account for all of you, like you don't have to give an account for anybody else in here, but a pastor has to give an account. I have to stand before the Lord on how I pastored you, how I shepherded you, how I preached to you. So there should be a, a deep honor and a respect. Again, not to boost myself. I'm talking for the office, not even for me only. And so let's walk through what the qualifications are. Now that we know our church's stance, I really wanted to push that out there. What we believe as a church, plurality of elder, elder is, a, is male-led. We believe that it's gender-specific based on the scriptures. Uh, elder must be honored, and elder does not mean old man with a cane. Let's walk through what the qualifications are. Anybody I put up before you should be able to look at this list and say, okay, not kill it. He's not killing the list. He, should, he may struggle with it, but you should be able to look at it and say, okay, I see those qualities in this man. Verse number one, the saying is trustworthy. Let me stop there for a second. This, this is, uh, whenever Paul says the saying is trustworthy, he's about to say something important. Five times in the pastoral epistles and his letters, he's written a trustworthy saying. Five times. In fact, he's done it twice in this letter already. He did it in chapter one, verse 15. And what he says in, one, in chapter one, verse number 15 uh, what he says there is this saying is trustworthy and deserving of all full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's talking about the gospel. And so what Paul does in, in, in chapter one is say this saying is trustworthy. Here's the gospel. By the time we get to chapter three, he's saying this saying is trustworthy and here are elders. So he's showing us the, the, the connection between or the importance between the gospel and elders within the local church. When he says this saying is trust, trustworthy. And so he, he's about what he's about to say holds weight. He's not about to say something that he doesn't. He's not thinking about like he's inspired by the Holy Spirit and about to say something that's very important. What does he say? This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office 
of overseer, he desires a noble task. I want to zoom us in on two specific words, aspiration and desire. That means that the calling to, to pastor, the calling to elder is an aspiration, not some mystical experience. Like I, I didn't fall into a trance and was beamed up to the throne and the Lord said, this is what I need you. Like, I, that feels like a good God voice. This is what I need you to do. It wasn't an experience like that. It was an aspiration. I aspire to the office. Anybody that is put before you as an elder, none of us should be begrudgingly doing the work. You know that feeling when you go to work on Monday and you're like, oh my God. Like, I don't have that feeling. I shouldn't have that feeling of, well, sometimes when I got to talk to Gabe, I'm like, oh God, again. That's every now and then. That's not all the time. But elders shouldn't have that feeling of not having an aspiration and a desire. That means that when, when we're looking for elders here at the church, I shouldn't have to go and say, I think the Lord's calling you to be an elder. I think the Lord's calling you to be an elder over and over again. There should be an aspiration. You should come to me and say, I think the Lord's calling me because the Lord births in us an aspiration. None of us go into this thing begrudgingly. Let me just be honest with you. I was in corporate America uh, doing well by the Lord's grace, moving up the corporate ladder, was making a little bit of money, was about to be literally the month before I left my, the company I was working for, was about to be relocated to Alpharetta, Georgia. My wife loves Alpharetta, got land out there, uh, price of living, cost of living is cheaper. I was on my way out, about to get my MDiv to work on you know, the business world, and the Lord said, no, nah, that's not what you're doing. You're going to do this. Now, in that moment, I could either be begrudging about it or I could say, man, this is great. I get to give my life to this. Like I, I get to give my life to pastoring people. And let me just say to you, there is nothing in the world that I would rather do than this right here. You couldn't pay me enough to do anything else. This is what I feel called to do, an aspiration and a desire so an elder, before we even get to qualifications, Paul shows us, no, he should aspire to the office. He should want it. He should, he should, he should de deeply desire it. But even with the aspirations, we have to be careful, right? Over-aspiration is a problem too. See, over-aspiration is a red flag for me. You overly have to get the, uh, the position because when, there, when there's an over-aspiration, normally it's not an aspiration to serve. Normally it's an aspiration to have authority. That's the danger that you have to sift through. That's why there should be a process of picking an elder, a process that the elder has to go through because then and only then are you able to sift out what the aspiration is. Also, an aspiration shouldn't be an aspiration to preach only. Like this is 25% of what I do. I mean, my week is jammed packed with counseling, with vision casting. There are things that I do outside of this pulpit that are extremely important. If your aspiration is to preach only, you're missing a big piece of it. I can't tell you how many young guys like the, the mic is like, a, is like a crack pipe. It is like we just, we just got to have a fix. We just got to hit the mic. But if that is your goal to be an elder, you probably shouldn't do the job. You probably shouldn't do the job. But there is more to it. Now, it's a piece of it, right? One of the qualifications was what? Able to teach. So there's a piece of it. There should be a desire. But if that is your only aspiration, we have a problem. And so aspiration is, a, is an important piece. So verse number one, he tells us, a pastor, or overseer, or elder must aspire to the office, and it's a good, that, that desire is a noble task. I, you know how many people come to me and say, oh man, like, and I'm dead serious when I say this, they're like, I think the Lord is calling me, you know, I want to run from this. I'm like, well, run. <laughs> like, I'm serious, run, because you should come to me like, oh my God, I'm eager, I'm so excited. I should have to pull you back, not push you forward. And so when we look for elders, we're looking for guys that have um, a deep commitment to the office in terms of aspiration. So verse one, he deals with that. Verse two through seven, he's now going to give us a list. I mean, just I, one after another. Qualifications are really characteristics. Qualifications is a weird word here. These are characteristics of what an elder looks like. This is a rubric for you that you could use as it relates to lining up men. Verse number two. 
Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. This, the first qualification or first characteristic that Paul gives us here is about the elder's reputation. He says he must be above reproach. In many, way, in many ways, all of the qualifications really fall under this one. He must be above reproach. Someone shouldn't be able to bring an accusation, a, a legit, verified accus, accusation against an elder. Like if my name was posted on the door and you guys got a chance to walk by and say something that you've witnessed outside of here, inside of here, something that you witnessed, none of us should be able to look at it and go, oh my gosh, like I can't believe, like I can't believe he did that. Like if someone catches me smoking weed and they write that on the list, you guys should be able to be like, oh my God, I, I never saw that. I never saw that. It should, be, it should be a false accusation. So the reputation of an elder is one that is important. Why, should it, why is it important? Because literally, the, like how you understand and hear the gospel is filtered through my reputation. In other words, if I was known for picking up prostitutes and beating my wife, I don't know why I keep saying beating my wife. Ty, I don't want to beat you. But if I'm known for that, and then I come in here and say, open up to Colossians chapter one, and you know about my reputation, it hinders how you hear the gospel. This is why Paul is saying, no, that man should be, his reputation should be clean. I'm not saying he's perfect, but he should have a, re a reputation of when he falls, he repents. When I fall, I have to say, man, I'm sorry. I messed up. And so the reputation, his reputation should precede him. It should. And listen, I'm just telling you, me personally, if I am going to bring a hindrance to the gospel, I'll sit myself down and I'll write notes while somebody else pastors until I can get myself together. It's that important. We will not dilute the, uh, the, the, the sweetness of the good news of the gospel. Look at verse number two. So he says that he must be above reproach the husband of one wife. I love this. This literally in the original language, it means one woman man. Now this doesn't mean polygamy. In the, in the, the, polygamy was considered immoral in the Greco-Roman society. And so this doesn't mean polygamy. What he's talking about is fidelity within the marriage. So the marriage of a elder and his role at the church isn't disconnected, it's both connected. If I can't love my wife, this means that an elder doesn't have a side chick. An elder doesn't text pictures of himself smiling in the mirror naked. Like elders don't do that. We don't, we don't do that. Elders don't have the ability to be in sex chat rooms. I'm just being explicit this morning. Elders don't, because this stuff happens. Like let's be honest, like how many elders fall because there's no accountability? Husband of one wife. I have no desire for any other woman besides my wife. That's what the scriptures just told us. You should be a husband of one wife. Elders aren't addicted to porn. We don't have that ability to be addicted to porn. And I'm not saying there's not a struggle. Maybe there is, but there should be somebody that's checking on you. Somebody that's holding you accountable. An elder is a one woman man. That's what Paul says. I love that he, that he pushes that. Winston Churchill was asked by a dignitary, he was asked, if you couldn't be you and you could be somebody else, who would you want to be? To which he uh, so brilliantly responds, I would want to be Miss Churchill's second husband. That's what an elder does. An elder has no desire for any other woman outside of his wife. He is serious about his wife. He's a one woman man is what the text just told us. So elders are devoted to their wife, physically, emotionally, Spiritually, he's connected to the oneness of his wife. That is what an elder is. And so there's no reason I should put a guy up here and say, I want to make him an elder, but you know he has a side chick. We can't do it. We can't do it. And so he rolls from the house, right? He talks about he should, have, he should be above reproach. His reputation is on the line. He should be a husband of one wife. Then he says, I'm going to read the next three together because they're kind of connected. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. There is a discipline that an elder has over his thought life and his actions. Self-control literally is a self-control literally is a is a fruit of the spirit. Read Galatians 5. 
One of the fruit of one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. And so an elder must walk under self-control, but it's already given not just to an elder, to all believers. All of us in here that have professed the name of Jesus Christ have the fruit of the spirit. Why? Because the moment you believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit was put in you. And so an elder must be self-controlled. He must be disciplined. His life can't be out of control. His life can't be out of order. There should be order within his life. There should be order not just within his life, but even within his thought process. So an elder doesn't, he's not out of control with his freedoms. There's some things he's free to do, but he's not out of control with it. I'm going to keep going because I am running out of time. It says hospitable. Now this doesn't mean... This doesn't mean hospitable in the sense of what you see Tasha and her team doing on a Sunday. This doesn't mean I should be downstairs putting out coffee and cake. Now, I can do that. I'm not saying I'm above that. But what I'm saying is when it says hospitable, the original language means lover of strangers. This means that the elder must love. When it says strangers, it's talking about unbelievers. He should love to engage with people that don't know Jesus. Can you imagine me preaching the gospel week in and week out and not caring about non-believers? That impacts how I preach the gospel. That impacts how I engage people. When I see people that I know that confess that they are far from the Lord, I should have a hunger and thirst. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse, verse 1, I earnestly desire that they may be saved. He had a desire to see lost people meet Jesus. An elder must care about people that don't know Jesus. He should be hospitable. He should be hospitable, and when, and when he is, it impacts how he's able to preach. A lover of strangers. Let's go back to verse number two. This is the last one in verse number two. He should be able to teach. The interesting thing about this one is this is the only skill set. Everything else in this list is a characteristic. It should be a part of who he is. This is the only one that actually takes a skill, should be able to teach. That means that we don't have pastors that are executive pastors that only handle money, outreach pastors that only do outreaches, but never get up here to talk to you about the truth of the scriptures. An elder should be able to ward off false teachers. He should be able to teach. Teach what? Teach the gospel. Why? Because what did the church devote themselves to last week? They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. An elder has to have the gifting of teaching. He should be able to do that. Now, that does mean you got to give him room to grow, right? When we put elders before you and they preach for the first time, you have to be able to give them room to grow. And so that means the church must be gracious, right? We, we're trying to raise some men. So this is the training ground to do it. Let these men come up here and talk about Jesus from the scriptures. Should be able to teach, have a passion to open the scriptures, be able to not have nothing but his Bible and another person across from him and counsel them through what the scriptures say. There has to be an ability to teach. And so the scripture gives us one of the requirements, and that is that he's able to teach. Teach what? Teach the gospel message of Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse number three. This is a long list, and I'm not even halfway through it. Not a drunkard. This doesn't say that he can't drink. This says he can't be drunk. Notice this. This means that you should never get, y'all know we meet in a lounge and downstairs is a bar, right? Like this means that when you come in, when the worship team is in their corner and they're singing and y'all all start to come in and we have chairs and everything is all set up and y'all shouldn't be looking around going, where's Pastor B? And I'm downstairs hitting the, the, the Ciroc. Y'all should, should be able to be like, okay, what's, what's going on? Like, you take, you're taking it too far. An elder cannot be a drunkard. Can you imagine me coming in on a Sunday morning drunk? Like, woozy, like, yo, open up to Colossians. Like, can you imagine an elder doing that? An elder cannot be one that is drunk. It goes back to his reputation, right? It goes back to above reproach. Elder can't be one that is given to wine. Again, like I said, he has control over his freedoms. An elder doesn't get drunk. An elder doesn't, he doesn't have to have a beer to go to bed. He can't, I can't sleep unless I have a cocktail. That's, we need to, we need to talk. That's not an elder. That's somebody that needs some serious counseling. 
Do you did you know in first this is off the topic in First Corinthians eleven when they were talking about um, the Corinthian church was a mess by the way but First Corinthians eleven they're talking about communion. Do you know in verse number twenty one it talks about how the believers were getting drunk off of communion? Like can y'all imagine that? Like this is the blood of our Lord and Savior. Everybody's like, like can you imagine an elder cannot be a drunkard? It's, I mean it's so simple, it's so plain. Verse number three. Can't be a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. An elder can't be one. An elder can't be a person that is that is always arguing, looking for arguments. Earlier this week, somebody cut me off. Yeah, now there's moments where you know when you're driving, where you have that road rage come up. There are moments where I have to check myself. I mean, earlier this week, somebody cut me off and I'm screaming at them, yelling at them, and I pull up to the light. Now, the light always humbles you, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. I pull up to the light and they creep up. I'm going, oh my God. That's when you know you're not about that life. <laughs> In that moment, when they pull up, it's like, oh my God. You try not to look like, oh God. They pull up and you see it's like an old person. You're like, yeah, whatever. I saw you. <laughs> Listen, we can't be quarrelsome. Like, you can't see me outside arguing about crazy stuff. You can't have me always looking to be quarrelsome and, and want to engage with you and even debate with you. Like, an elder's not quarrelsome. He's gentle. He's gentle. He cares about your soul. And so he shows it. The scripture says, when, when, it says, when it says an elder can't be quarrelsome or not violent, what it literally is saying is he's not a giver of blows. He's not looking to fight. He's not walking into a situation and thinking, I want to argue with this person. All right, verse number three. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Elders can't. This doesn't mean he can't make money. It just means he can't love it. So he can't be an elder. An elder cannot be a lover of money. Verse number Four, he must manage his old household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his household, how would he care for God's church? The training ground for elders is how they operate at home. And so if you want to be an elder here and you're married, I'm bringing your wife in. How's he pastoring you? How's he doing with, 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 with this list? Give me some weaknesses within this list. We all have them. Tell me what the weaknesses are. If his children are old enough, I want to know how you parent them. I want to know how you pastor your kids. How, you, how do you interact with the scriptures with your kids? These are qualifications of an elder. His household must be in order. Look at what it says, though. Note that it says, when it talks about keeping his children submissive, it says, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And so in other words, there's a way that you can keep your children submissive that's indignified. And so there's a way you do that, but an elder must keep his children submissive with dignity. That means a, a child can't be. Now, this doesn't mean a child can't like, go astray and you can't be an elder because you're, you're, he has to walk with the Lord himself. Like I'm not saying like everything isn't dependent on that. But what I'm saying is how you interact and how you handle that is an important piece of how you'll handle the church. Verse number six. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, so he can't be he can't be newly converted. Now, when it says this, this doesn't mean necessarily number of years, because the scripture, if it would have, if it would have been a number of years, the scriptures would have said he can't be an elder at least for two years, at least for three years, at least for four years or whatever the number is. This isn't talking about number. It's talking about maturity. Can't be a, he can't be an immature believer. He has to be a mature believer that knows how to handle, uh, he knows how to handle someone else's sin. See, if, you're, if I was an immature, and I'm still growing, I don't want to make it look like I'm killing this. I'm not. Um, I'm still growing. But if you have an elder that's immature and you bring to him a serious situation, he may not even know how to handle that. Like, or he may handle it in an immature way. It's important for elders to be Serious about their maturity in their walk of the Lord. Um, let's finish this up. When it talks about um, 
that he may fall into the condemnation of the devil. This isn't meaning losing salvation. We don't believe that. You're in, in, you are eternally secure if you've trusted Jesus. So this isn't saying an elder that is a recent convert that's put, or a potential elder that's put into place that's a recent convert. This is talking about the potential to sin, may make him fall into sin, not lose his salvation. Verse number seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. And so your, your role, when I just talk to you guys, you guys should be able to walk out and see a list and be able to not be surprised because I should be able to walk with this. Outsiders should be able to engage and say, you know, if my neighbors hear that I'm a pastor and are like, oh my God, he's a pastor. That's, a, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. And, and an outsider should be able to look at a pastor and be like, man, I don't know how to put that, but I see that. Like, I get that. That makes sense. He must. This doesn't mean that you're not going to have issues with outsiders or issues with people in the church. Like you may have an issue, a legitimate issue with an outsider. I don't know, a lawsuit, something crazy. You may have that. And so you're protected in that. But you've done all you can to keep this list to live above reproach, even with the outsider. And so uh, verse number seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Listen, elders are an important aspect of the church. Really wanted to get us on the ground today to think about what it is to be an elder. One day, and I, I keep saying this, but it's true. One day, I prayerfully, if, if the Lord says the same, I'll be able to present men before you that have walked faithfully with this and say to you, man, I want to make these guys elders. If you guys know anything that's in contradiction to this, please let us know before we make them an elder. I should be able to say that to you guys. You guys weigh in. If there's nothing that comes back, we should be able to push men forward. But it starts with an aspiration, an aspiration. And so I pray that you would think about, as we talk about elders, think about our church as it relates to one day presenting elders to you. I pray that you would think about it and pray for them. Pray for me. Like, I'm not above this list. Like I could at any time fall off on one of these things in this list. Please pray for me with that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you've wired and designed the church to be governed and guided. You didn't leave us to be um, to, to try to figure this thing out for ourselves, but you've given us men after your heart, men that are not a pursuit of being quarrelsome and arguing, but men that genuinely and sincerely, passionately love your church. Pray that you would raise men up here. Pray that you would bring men forward to, to say, I have an aspiration and a desire. And pray that they would be able to fall in this. You told us not, and later on in this letter, you told us not to lay hands too quickly. So Father, we want to we wanna honor that. But Father, I pray through discipleship, through engagement, through investment, that we'll see fruit and that you'll put good, solid men around this church that are passionate about your church, that aren't looking to have authority, but looking to serve. Father, that's all a call to elder is, is a call to die, call to give your life, call to serve the church, call to put people above them. Father, would you birth that? in this church. We thank you for all of the men, not just in this church, but across this world that you have ordained to the office of elder. Would you bless them? Would you encourage their hearts? Pastors are the loneliest people. Would you encourage them today? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.